everyone. Thanks for tuning in. We want to invite you to learn more about the heart and vision of City of Lights. So check out our website at cityoflights.church and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at City Lights Indie. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's message. Morning, church. How we doing? That was actually a pretty great good morning. I appreciate that. Some of y'all have already awoken. You're good. You've got some good breakfast in your system. Probably some caffeine of some beverage. Uh, but I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. My name is Pastor John. I have the joy and honor of serving as the lead pastor here. And you're joining us in week three of a three-week series called The Pursuit. And over the course of these last couple weeks, what we've been doing is looking at Luke chapter 15, at an interaction that Jesus was having with some scribes, Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners. And the trilogy, I would say this is like one of the grand trilogies uh, in Scripture. If any of you are fans of movie trilogies, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is probably one of my favorite. Uh, Star Wars, they just got greedy. they just like, we're just going to keep making these movies so they have multiple ones. Uh, but specifically within the context of Scripture, uh, I would say three very famous uh, parables that we have here, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and as we're going to talk about today, the parable where we talk about the prodigal son are brought to communicate a very specific glimpse into the heart of God. I've really personally been looking forward to today as I've looked over and thought about how we were going to be laying this Sunday out because uh, the prodigal son, it's kind of like if, if for those of you who are J.R.R. Tolkien fans, the Lord of the Rings, it's like you, you see the Fellowship of the Ring, you see the Twin Towers, the Two Towers, but you know the return of the King is coming. And so there's this anticipation of what is that battle going to be like? What's that going to be like? Are they going to do it justice? And so knowing what's coming, I've had an excitement in my heart. And I think one of the reasons that it's kind of near and dear to my heart is because that I am a father myself. God's blessed me with uh, some beautiful children. And with that, I know that there is a passion that I carry that's not just about being a dad, but it's about building a family and the inheritance and the blessing that comes with that. And so we're not going to waste any time. I want to jump right into the Scripture. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to begin in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took it on a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent them into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near the house and he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you gave, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't love how we love. That you don't forgive the way we forgive. Lord, that your love for us is extravagant and beyond measure. Lord, I ask that you would help us this morning in whatever place that we find ourselves, wherever we've been, that you would awaken us and open our eyes and open our hearts and our minds to the fullness of our inheritance. God, I'm asking that you would help me to communicate your truth with conviction and clarity. And Lord, that you would be honored in not the hearing only, but the doing of your word. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Gabby. So as I mentioned to you, one of the things that I love is I love being a dad. Uh, I, I love family, honestly. In all of the craziness and complexity of family, I love family. How many of you are a part of a family in here? Literally everyone's hand should be up right now. Like, it doesn't matter whether you are ashamed of your family, whether you like your family, whether you don't like your family, you came from family. And I love, like, I'm the oldest of seven, and we have a whole lot of aunts and uncles. You know, it kind of got to the point where I was like, you know, there, there's, I'm going to go into the complexity of our family, but there's a lot of people that came a lot of different ways. And it got to the point where I was just like, you go to the family reunion, and you're like, oh, there's a new one? Okay, God bless you. Uh, I kind of imagine that might have been what it was like to be a part of the 12 tribes of Israel where you like come to the family dinners and you're like, oh, wait a second, like, your family too? I thought we were going to date. 
and <laughs> or we got married, and you my cut. No, uh, Old Testament's crazy things. Um, but you know, I, I, I love I love family. I love being a part of a big family. I love the fact that we have our own tribe. Um, for those of you who don't know, we have four boys. We have two girls. One of our little girls is with the Lord. She passed away eight years ago. There's not a day I don't think about her. God, who is gracious and did not owe me a thing. Five years after our daughter passed away, blessed us with a second daughter on her birthday, on Aria's birthday. And so we are blessed. We've got our four ninja warriors, and we have our ninja sissy mama, Ella Rose. She is also a ninja. Don't get it twisted. Uh, but, you know, as, as, a, as a dad, and as I love them, it's not enough, you know, being a part of family, it's not enough for them to just know that I love them and for them to love me. I want them to experience the fullness of the joy of being a part of the family. That means it's not just my relationship with them, but their relationship with one another. If you're a parent in here or you've been a sibling before, you know that there are horizontal and challenge and uh, vertical and horizontal challenges when it comes to family. There's your relationship with your parents. There's your relationship with your siblings. And there is a richness and a blessing and a gift that I believe God's called us to walk in when it comes to our relationship not only with him, but our relationship with each other, with our siblings, with our brothers and our sisters. I want you to, you know, as we look at these parables and we look specifically at the parable today, one of the things that I think is very important for us to grasp is that we were created for connection. I want you to hear that again. We were created for connection. That in the very beginning when God created all that is, he did not just create us to be in fellowship with him, although that was the centerpiece of our creation. Do you know he didn't just, he didn't just create us to wander on pastures and eat grass. He didn't just create us to just fly through the skies and build nests. He created us in his likeness. He made us like him to fellowship with him, to interact with him. And yet, when Adam was in perfect fellowship and relationship with God, when Adam was in undivided, undistracted, unfettered fellowship with God, God looked at man and said, it's not right for man to be alone. Uh, do I think in that moment God was just trying to help him work out the processes of his sex drive? Absolutely not. There was something about God desiring for man to experience the fellowship and the unity of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to experience true community, and he created woman. And through Adam and Eve, all of family that we know of has been birthed out of family. Our inheritance, our God-given inheritance, oftentimes when we, think, when we think about the fall, when we think about the break, when we think about the division that took place in the garden, the number one thing we think about is our separation from God. And we are reminded of God giving this first demonstration of him covering 
our sin by the shedding of blood, where in Genesis 3, God takes the skins of an animal. There was bloodshed. It was what they call in, in a theological term, the proto-evangelion. It's the first mention of the gospel, a foreshadowing of what Christ would do to create coverings, to cover their sin and their shame, to restore them to the Father. But what we can miss is that the inheritance was not just relationship with the Father. It was relationship with one another. It's amazing to me when you look at Genesis 2 in this brief glimpse of the relationship of Adam and Eve. They were naked and unashamed. They were vulnerable. All things exposed. And yet there was no shame. There was no condemnation. There was no guilt. There was no sense of needing to hide or protect and yet, right after the fall, immediately blame is being casted. Oh, this woman you gave me. Bro, you were just thanking me a chapter ago. And now it's, she's becoming this woman. God created us for connection. So, when we look at Luke 15... I think a lot of times when we look at this passage, particularly this parable of the prodigal son, we can look at it often out of context and get just a part of the significance, but actually miss out on some of the weightiness and the, the historical context of this moment. If you just look at it as a separate narrative apart from what has just happened, we can often just look at it as, you know, here was a son who squandered, who had a loving father, and he abandoned, he wanted his inheritance, he squandered his inheritance, he sinned, he backslid, whatever religious phrase you want to put on it, and then he had this moment where he repented and he came before the father, and the father restored him and loved him. And we make it all about this restoration and this forgiveness between a father and a son, and that's part of it. But you have to be reminded of the context of this passage. See, Jesus, it says at the beginning of Luke 15, he had sinners and tax collectors who had been drawn to him. And on the side were Pharisees and scribes who were mocking Jesus, saying, look at him. He's a friend of sinners. He hangs out with these sinners. He mixes with these sinners. And Jesus... In only the just most powerful and beautiful and merciful way that he does, he proceeds to not rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes, but help them to understand the heart of God and what was at work that they were missing. So the first week, we talk about the sheep, the lost sheep, and who would not what good shepherd would not leave the 99 and go after the lost sheep? Then the second parable is about the lost coin. Who, if, you know, he talks about a woman who has 10 coins and loses one and she sweeps through the house and she turns on a lamp and she searches until it's found. And in both the parable of the sheep and the coin, there's a grand celebration, much like we'll see at the end of this, this uh, parable. But then he says, okay, guys, I'm going to bring it home. Because I don't think you got it with the first one, and I don't think you got it with the second one, but I love you so much, I'm not going to let you miss this. So, 
I want to give you a bit of a cultural, historical perspective on this parable. So first of all, the prodigal son, when he's asking for his inheritance, this is a bit of a complicated situation. Because it wasn't like they just had like a big bank account at Regions Bank where he could just divvy up what was in savings. More than likely, what he's talking about is in the context of this inheritance, this was property, this was land, this was cattle, this was equipment, this was possessions, and two things that you need to know. First of all, the concept of an inheritance, was, it was something that was not even thought of to be given until the father had died. You would, you would never cross the mind of a Hebrew son to even imagine having the audacity to ask for his inheritance before his father had passed away. Because in doing so, he basically was telling his dad, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. And then on top of that, in the way in which he's asking for his inheritance is typically once the father would die, what would happen is the oldest son would get a double portion. And so two-thirds of the inheritance would go to the older son, and a third of the inheritance would go to the younger son. And what they would do is they would continue to steward the, the property and the land and the pasture and the cattle that their father had, been, had given them, and they would continue to increase it. So it wasn't like you would take your inheritance and then you just go off somewhere. Your inheritance was all that your father and your family accumulated and developed over time. It was passed on. There was a sense as a father in this this culture where you wanted as a parent to build something, not just for yourself because you knew you were going to pass it on to your children. And so here he had been building something to pass on to his sons. And not only is his son telling me, I wish you were dead, but he's also saying all that you've worked for, all that you've put your blood, sweat, and tears for, all that you and your heart have desired to pass on for me, I don't want any of it. Just cash me out. Just liquidate it. Give me some worth. I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't want you I don't want your stuff. I don't want this family. Now, as you can imagine, for this father, it's a pretty humiliating ask. It's a pretty painful rejection. But for the older brother, it was also pretty humiliating. You see, it was the elder brother's responsibility to actually serve as the steward of the father's possessions. So in order for this request to be answered, it would actually mean that the elder brother would be part of this negotiation of separation of estate. It meant that in order for him to liquidate the inheritance that was owed him, more than likely because he wanted to leave, they probably didn't get all the value that they could have gotten. And that elder brother was more than likely a part of all of those negotiations. And watching as his father's hard-earned work was completely squandered and seen of it as cheap and worthless. The brother would get his inheritance. He would go to a far-off place, and he would waste it away. And not only did he waste it away, but he found himself in the midst of one of the worst famines. And this famine was so great that when it says he was hired by someone, 
Many scholars, when they look at this word hired, it's, it's actually more akin not just to getting a good job or to getting a job as a slave, but actually he was so desperate that he attached himself to someone. He begged someone for work just so that he could possibly survive. It's kind of like if you've ever been in L.A. or if you've ever been on a missions trip and you're driving in a car and there are people who are so desperate for work, they'll just come up and start spraying your glass and windshield and cleaning it and hoping that you might give them something. So the younger brother was so famished, was so destitute, was so broken, was so lost. He probably attached himself to someone and whoever it was, this person from a far off land who wasn't a Jew thought, you know what, I, this will be a job for a good Jewish boy. Go clean the pigs. Go feed the pigs. So here he is in this state of being among pigs, starving. You know things are bad when you're looking at what the pigs are eating and getting envious. And yet that couldn't even be digested by him. And so he gets a thought. Even the slaves and servants in my father's house eat better than this. Maybe if I could just get back there. Maybe he'll just at least let me be a servant. Now, when I read this scripture and I read this passage, what I don't see here is actually like a deep conviction of sin. What I see is desperation. Have you ever just been like so desperate? That you don't even necessarily like, you're not thinking this deep spiritual religious thought. You're just like, God, if you, you got to have a better option than I'm in right now. I, I don't know if I, I'm still wrestling with this hurt and I'm still wrestling with this offense and these ways and this mindset. And I don't even know what it means to walk in lordship, but I'm starving and dying right now. So maybe if I could just show up at church, maybe that'll just help me get be a little bit happier in life. So the younger brother begins to head home. Now, when it came to humiliation, when it came to honor, this is not a joke in the Jewish community. Honor is a big deal. And so for this younger brother to have rejected his father and abandoned and rejected his inheritance and basically said, I don't want you, I don't want the inheritance, I cut off myself from the family. There were actual traditions that would be done to almost in an official way say, you are no longer a part of this family. You are cut off. And so even before he would make it to his father's house, this wasn't like, you know, some spread out rule. Every once so often you might see a family kind of community. These, these communities would communicate these communities were, were connected and people knew, would have heard about this son. Many of them probably thought he was dead because of the famine. But the shame that it must have brought upon his father and his son would not just have been something that they would know, the whole community would have been aware of. And this son knew that this is what he should expect. I'm sure as he was thinking about 
going back, it wasn't just his father that he was thinking about. It was thinking about the people he was going to see as he'd step back near those places. I don't know, maybe you find yourself like the younger brother and the thought of coming back to God, you've been so desperate, but the thought of having to face church folks again has been scarier than even that. So here, the younger brother was coming and walking towards rehearsing his speech of what he's going to say just to somehow get servanthood. And it says that while he was afar off, the father saw him and began to pursue him. Now, the pursuit that is described, the word that they use, it actually refers to one who would run a race, a foot race. Again, to have cultural context here is for a man of his stature and a man of his age, it would have been seen as disgraceful and humiliating to run. One, because of the kind of clothes that they would wear. He would literally have to lift up his tunic, exposing his legs, which was also seen as humiliating, and be undignified in running and pursuing someone who had rejected and brought shame on the family. It was unheard of. The father should have never, any normal father in this situation would have waited right at the house for that son to take the long walk of shame and if he even made it to the house by the rejection and the condemnation and the cursing that came from the people in the community. It's kind of like if you remember that scene from the princess bride when she's having the dream and the people and the villagers are throwing cabbage at her and saying, boo, boo. There's a movie where uh, on Netflix where I remember there was, there was a boy who said something in the classroom and the teacher looked and said, shame on you, shame him. And everybody said, shame. That's what was culturally accepted. That's what was normal. And quite frankly, in many's eyes, that is what was just. He screwed up. He rejected the love and the provision of the Father. He should get all the shame and all the worthlessness that he feels on the journey up. And yet the Father said, I am gonna, I'm sure he ran even faster than normal because he said, I'm going to get to him before anybody else does. And when he gets to him, he doesn't just say under his breath, breath, you know how humiliating it is for you to leave the way that you did and dare think you could come back? What do you want from me? Would he have maybe just given him a couple denarii and sent him on his way? No. He yells back to the servants. He yells back, letting anyone that was within an earshot know, go get the robe, get the ring, get his sandals. My son has returned. And it says he killed the fatted calf. We see in an even greater measure the celebration and the rejoicing that would take place when one that was lost was found. It was not a small thing at all. There was great expense that was put to celebrate this love and this excitement and this celebration for the son that was lost was not normal. It was prodigal. 
It was extravagant. But it says at the beginning of the parable that this is the parable about a father and his two sons. Now we see that this party is going on and the elder son begins to walk up and he hears the music and he hears the celebration and he wonders what's going on. Now, a cultural context that you might miss here is, as I said before, part of inheritance and particularly the role of the elder brother, the oldest son, was stewardship, was to manage all that the father had, and particularly in times of celebrations, it would actually be the older son that would almost be leading the party. It would be the oldest son that would be communicating and telling the musicians where to go and telling the, the cooks where to put the animal and which animal to pick. It would be the eldest son that was actually planning the party and dealing with the guests and interacting with the guests. So for the fact that we see here and the scribes and the Pharisees who would be familiar with this, they hear this and everyone that would hear this tale would say, why is it that a celebration is happening? Why is it that guests from the community have been gathered. Why is it that the father is rejoicing and the guests are here and the food is here and the music is here, but the brother is far off? To me, I think that when you can look at this, I would imagine, given the context, that the shame the humiliation that the younger brother caused not only for the father, but that that did a work on the elder brother. He felt the weight of the tear of the inheritance. He felt the sting and watched as his father and their estate and their family line was embarrassed. He had to stay and interact with those to buy feed and to exchange cattle after his brother had gone. People who probably at one point he had interacted with a sense of pride and confidence because of the estate that they had now, their family marked with shame. And I would think that there was probably a part of it where that shame and that hurt, that humiliation had gone so deep that where the younger brother was so rejected and so broken that he was just hoping to become a servant. The elder brother who had been given all that his father had, had settled for being a servant. He was never meant to be out in the pasture. He was meant to be leading the party. Now, this is what I love about our God. 
when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners, one of the things that God understands is that this isn't just taking place in a vacuum. You see, one of the things that they would have been very familiar with is that the people of God had been separated into two kingdoms. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this, there were the, tri the 12 tribes of Israel. And eventually what had taken place is there was a severing and there was a splitting into two tribes. It was the northern king or to two sects. It was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was comprised of Judah and Benjamin. They were known as Judah. And they were a kingdom that would continue to walk and follow the ways of God. The other ten tribes would form the northern kingdom. And just to give you a picture of some of the similarities that the northern kingdom had with this younger brother is they were at one point in covenant relationship with the father just as the younger son was. They were cut off from the father because of their sin, their idolatry, their paganism just as the younger son was. They were considered dead to the father, similar to the younger son. They intermingled with pagan nations just as the younger son was. But they were also called to be restored to the Father through the Messiah. And that God would cause them to one day be reunited. Also, similar to this, and what he's speaking to, is that some in the remaining tribes would reject this reconnection. Jesus was trying to remind them of Hosea 1.11 where it says, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. If you remember at the beginning, I said that we were created for connection and that God's plan for restoration was not just for you and me, but it's for we. That in God's heart, his desire is that our full inheritance is not just that we get, get out of hell and into heaven to be with him. It says in the book of Revelation that there was a mighty multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Your inheritance is not about you and Jesus. It's about you and me. I am your inheritance. Some of y'all are like, dang, man. <laughs> well, you mine too, so... He's reminding them of Ezekiel 37, 21 through 24. Ezekiel, as he's having this encounter with God shortly after the vision of the dry bones, it says in verse 21, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will 
save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. For some reason, the Pharisees and the scribes the religious regime at the time that Jesus was speaking to were not really getting the fact that Jesus was not just telling them a story about how much God's heart is for the lost. He was actually giving them a notice that that which has been prophesied the restoration of our family is happening right before your eyes. He's reminding them that your inheritance is not just the Messiah. Your inheritance is a renewed family. So when the father is looking around and they're celebrating the prodigal who had returned, there was now a second son who was actually shaming him. You see, just as it was understood of the cultural understanding of inheritance, just as that was an affront for the younger son to basically say, I wish you would die. Give me my stuff and I'm going to run. The elder son's responsibility to steward and to care for and to represent his father in matters like this, for him to not be there was an act of dishonor and disrespect. It was an act to say, you know what? I can't even respect you anymore. And then for the father to pursue him and the son not take a posture of humility but actually try to undress him verbally was again an act of dishonor and disrespect. I stayed right where I was supposed to be. I handled your affairs. I did the exchanges. I dealt with the breeding. I dealt with the feeding. I dealt with the culture. I led the servants. I told them where to go and where not to go, and I carried the humiliation too. And so this joker, your son, he doesn't even call him his brother, your son returns, and this is what you do for him? You've never given me a goat for my friends. This loser, this reject comes. He had lived in the home of his father. But he had missed out on the heart of his father. Do you know we can live in the house of God and miss the heart of God? Do you know that the goal of Christian Life is not just to do all the right things and maintain all of our religious meetings and traditions and then be inconvenienced 
not just when far off lost people, whoever they may be in the nebulous realm, come back, but when God actually brings someone home or begins restoring someone who legitimately offended you. God's heart is connection. We were created for connection. And it's not enough just for you to walk with God. In fact, in 1 John, as we just got finished doing a series, he's helping us to understand you can't say that you love God and yet hate your brother. You, you can't truly, you will never fully experience the richness and the depth of the inheritance of God while holding on to bitterness and offense towards your brother or your sister. And even a step further, not only will you not experience the fullness of it, but if you do not repent and allow God to work in you, you won't just miss out on your inheritance, you'll actually detest it. See, Jesus, he kind of leaves this story. What I think is interesting is after the father lovingly, see, the father didn't just pursue the younger brother, the father pursued the older brother. The father did not rebuke the older brother. The father went to him and went to entreat him and to help encourage him to come in and partake in the party. You should be leading this. Don't miss out. But it's left open-ended. And we don't really know what the elder brother did, except for we see this, and we see it within its cultural context. Jesus was kind of putting it out there for these Pharisees and scribes and saying, I'm letting you know. This is what's happening. I am reconciling all to me. And you can be a part of this, and I want you to be a part of this. But it's your choice. Now, we don't know what everybody did that day, but do we do know that some of these Pharisees their response, their next step would be to crucify Jesus. If they were the elder brother, perhaps they would pick up a stick and smack the father across the face. You say, but what... What about justice? What about the humiliation that the younger brother caused? Somebody should pay for that. Somebody should pay for the devaluing of truth, the devaluing of what's right and what's holy and what's pure. Absolutely. But that's the beauty and the power of grace. It's that Jesus paid it all. He didn't just pay 
for the shame and the humiliation and the idolatry of the younger brother, but the older brother as well. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, before he came to faith in Christ, leading the charge as a zealot, knowing the Torah, knowing the scrolls, and then after he did convert and he repented, he was still a scholar, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, covered the known world to, praise, to reach and preach the gospel, and yet he himself would look at all of his accomplishments and say these are worth rubbish compared to being in fellowship with God and knowing him. I don't care who you are today. No matter how good you think you are, our greatest and best deeds are like filthy rags before the king. And none of us could be reconciled by our own merit. And when we think and we get all up and caught up in what we deserve or what they deserve, it's usually a signal that we don't agree with God's standard and his way of dealing with things and we'll be the judge. This morning... Gabby, can you go ahead and come up? I want to speak of two invitations. Is that whichever brother you are, whichever you most easily relate to, I love that the Father in neither situation used the tactic of shame. And condemnation. Shame and condemnation is not a tool of the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear that this morning. Conviction is. You hear people talk about being convicted. That's actually a beautiful grace. Said the younger brother came to his senses. There's something about the mercy of God, even if it's embarrassing, even if it's downright humiliating, to have a moment of conviction to know I was not made for this. And my dad loves me a lot more than this. If you've been convicted of sin, if you've been convicted, whether it's of an addiction, Porn addiction, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, control addiction, right addiction, idolatry, placing a political party above fidelity to the gospel, placing your ethnic pride above the cross. Placing your love of control of your finances above trust and reliance on him. Trusting yourself as a better judge. It's conviction by way of compassion 
that the Father has for you this morning. Why? Because his goal is not to affirm one and then shake the finger at the other, but to say, hey, I've got a plan. And it's that I want us to be together. I want us to be restored. If you've come and you know that you're the younger brother who has squandered your inheritance, maybe you've lived your life far from God, maybe you got invited by a friend who knows you haven't been to church in a while, but they don't even have a clue as to the depth of the things that you've gotten into, and you probably don't even want to tell them ever. Maybe the weight of sin and shame and condemnation has been so suffocating that the thought of coming to church or the thought of coming around a bunch of church people just has felt so overwhelming and you would in any other situation and circumstance avoid coming here at all costs, but it's gotten so bad and you're so desperate that you are willing to even brave a few stairs if there was hope to breathe. If that's you, I want you to know that no matter what you've done, no matter how gross you think it is or it is, no matter what has been done to you and the way that you responded to it in any way, shape, or form, I want you to know that God's love for you is so extravagant that he could care less about the shame and the condemnation that might come from any other eyes. But all you're going to see from his eyes is unbelieving, extravagant love. Even as you lower your gaze and you don't want to look at him in the eye and you're just thinking, God, but I should have known better. I went to this, I went to church camp and I grew up here and I did this and I still, I told myself, I'll never be one of those kids and here I am. He says, no, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. I love you. I love you. And, I, and you don't just get to come back. I actually, I have a covering for you. You don't have to walk in those, you don't have to be naked and ashamed. I'm going to clothe you in my righteousness. Let me put this ring on your finger. You see, a ring, it wasn't just a piece of jewelry. It was a signet of authority. I'm not just letting you back in the house. I'm actually restoring your calling. The thing that you thought was lost, the calling and the purpose and the destiny that you thought you had completely squandered and it was long gone and if you could just crawl and be a servant, you'd be happy. I'm giving I know there's somebody in here today that from a young age, God gave you a glimpse and a vision of what he called you to do and your purpose and the impact that he wanted you to make. And you dreamed about it and you thought about it. And as you got older, you drifted. And there's been a part of you that that pain of knowing what you lost or, or, or what you seemingly completely squandered has been paralyzing God wants you to know he is restoring you 
not just to the family, but to your calling. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that Christ came, that God loved you so extravagantly that he came as a man in Christ, that he lived the life that you should have lived, perfect and blameless. He allowed himself to be publicly humiliated, culturally humiliated, stripped naked, beaten beyond recognition, and he died the death that we should have died in our place. He paid the debt of your foolishness. He paid and took on the full weight of humiliation for the debt that you owed. But he rose three days later, proving that he was the Son of God and offering not only salvation, but you need to hear this. He offers forgiveness of sin to everyone who repents and believes in him. If that's you, I want you to pray with me. Go ahead and bow your heads this morning. If that's you, you say, I want to come home. I want to receive this love of this Father. I want to be restored. I need forgiveness. I want to be cleansed. I want to be made new. If that's you, you say, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. Maybe you grew up in the church or around the church, but you've drifted, you've abandoned, you've rejected God, and you're here today because God brought you here and he led you here and he's chased you down. Will you receive him? If you say, I want to receive the Father, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior today, would you please just raise your hand right where you are? I want to pray for you. Receive him this morning. see your hands. Thank you. Would you pray this prayer with me? Say, Jesus, thank you for loving me so much. I know that I've sinned and I've been far from you, but I turn today. I repent of my sin and I surrender my life to you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe you raised from the dead so that I could rise to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we celebrate this morning? Can we celebrate this morning? Hallelujah. rejoicing in heaven over what just happened. I'm telling you, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I just want you to know, those that raised their hand, there is a celebration that is happening in heaven, but I also want you to know that we are celebrating right here and right now.
Secondly, perhaps you relate to more the elder brother. You didn't leave the house, but perhaps you lost sight of the heart. You've done the duties, you've obeyed the law, but you find it hard to forgive others who have deeply and legitimately hurt you and offended you and betrayed you. You aren't really compelled and you actually don't maybe get excited to see someone get restored necessarily because in the back of your mind you kind of think that's what they deserve. Maybe you see people who are broken and struggling and what tends to come up in your mind is thinking about what did they do that got them there rather than there's a God who wants to bring them out and restore them. And I do want to say that that humiliation and that hurt, that offense, it's not that that in and of itself is sin. Do you know it's okay to be upset when someone has done you wrong? Can y'all hear me this morning? If you've been done wrong, it's okay to say, you did me wrong. That was not okay. It is also okay to recognize that the wages of sin is death. And when we participate and we walk in agreement with things that are of death, it will have a consequence on our soul. And yet, even in the midst of that, we too, as children of God, have to make a choice to ultimately honor God above our hurt and offense. And it's even deeper than that is because God, part of honoring him is actually taking on the fullness of your call and your stewardship. What do I mean by that? Church, in 2 Corinthians 8, 18 through 21, it says, all this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled himself. I'm sorry, let me give you, make sure I give you this right scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 18, starting in verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we are heirs, we are co heirs with Christ. The elder brother had an inheritance, not just to get something for the Father, but to steward and represent the Father. We have been given an inheritance, not just to receive the blessing of God, but to be the, the stewards and the distributors of the blessing of God. It says in verse 19, that is in Christ, God was recon reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He 
he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why am I giving this charge? Is that as long as we hold on to bitterness and offense, as long as we walk in unforgiveness, as long as we put ourselves in the position as the judge and choose not to honor and recognize what God has reconciled unto himself, as long as we do that, we are actually missing out on the very purpose that we were put on the planet. We were created for connection. Not stuff. Not just doing all the things. Not just good religious work. We have an inheritance to be the ambassadors of grace. To be the ambassadors and the representatives of forgiveness. To be the ambassadors and representatives of mercy. You can't be an ambassador of mercy and grace and forgiveness of love. If you're walking as the just, just a car, I want us, my prayer is that God, in your grace and mercy, as God continues to allow us, we're celebrating two years over these next couple weeks, two years of being a community and a church here in Indianapolis. And my prayer is, Jesus, if, t say we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary, we've got a bunch of great saved people who tithe, sign up for city groups, who go on missions trips, who read this Bible, but are content with just going through Christian duties and hanging out in our Christian circles, but don't have a place where the lost can come and not just walk in, but they get pursued. If we're not that church, I'm sorry, y'all. It breaks my heart to even think about that. I want to be a church that God sends the prodigals. I want to be a church where those who would settle for being slaves get blasted with the compassion and the mercy of Jesus because before they even walk through our sliding doors, they can sense the presence of God. And we don't wait for them to jump through all the hoops to feel the love of the Father but that surely goodness and mercy is going to pursue them. That's the joy. When we talk about seeing heaven come to earth, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is what we get to be a part of. For some of y'all, you don't even have to go anywhere and nobody needs to walk in. It's just getting right with the person next to you. getting right with the person in the back row and you strategically sit in this section in this row so you can kind of avoid them. 
Let's not stay in that place. Bow your head. find yourself this morning relating more to the elder brother I want you to know that God is not here to shame you or rebuke you but to tell you the pain and the sting and the humiliation that you felt doesn't matter he wants you to know that it has not gone unpaid for He is very well acquainted with the cost and the weight of the betrayal and the cost and the weight of the offense. Young man who was abused before the age of seven, God wants you to know that releasing that And forgiving does not mean that that did not matter. Woman of God, the betrayal that you felt, the abandonment that you felt, the lack of covering that you felt from that husband, it does not get a pass. The Lord wants you to know it was carried on his back. It was paid for in the most precious currency that has ever graced this earth, his own blood. He does not want you to walk in the shackles. He does not want you to be robbed from any longer. Sir, who has experienced decades of the fruit of systematic racism, who has maybe even told yourself at one point, I can never trust someone or a leader of this ethnicity. The Lord wants you to know that that injustice matters to him and that you matter to him. And you matter so much that he actually made himself humble and low and came and clothed in humanity though he was surrounded by glory. And he made himself low and he allowed himself to be spat upon and beaten and humiliated and made a curse. His clothes ripped from him and gambled on because that pain you felt mattered. And it mattered so much he didn't settle for anybody else to take it on. He said, I'm going to take this myself. So what my call is this morning, man, woman, Teenager, child, would you surrender it to him? Would you repent of self-righteousness? Would you step out of the seat 
of the judge and the king. And when you surrender and trust the Father to not only restore those who maybe you think don't deserve it, but restore you to joy, to fellowship, to calling, to purpose, to his heart. If that's you, I want to take just a moment, and right where you are, I'm just going to shut up for a minute, and I want you to just talk to the Lord. Gracious Father, I ask that you would bring comfort to every wound and every hurt. Holy Spirit, that you would bring salve and a healing balm to every laceration that has festered and become infected. God, I'm asking that you would remove years of scar tissue that has accumulated and, and grown so thick that it's numbed. kept us from feeling and sensing your heart. God, I ask that you would bring healing and restoration. And Lord, I ask that you would help each and every person in here. God, I'm asking that you would help me, Lord, to hear your voice and to feel your heart and to be compelled by your compassion, to be compelled by your extravagant love. Lord, let us be reminded that we aren't owed anything but death according to our deeds. But Lord, it's by your mercy and your love and your grace that any of us have any kind of inheritance to speak of. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, not just to look upon people with disdain or judgment, Lord, not that we can't recognize bad fruit from good fruit, but I, Lord, I pray that rather than looking at a tree with rotted fruit, God, I pray that you'd help us not to think with just disgust, not to think with abandonment, but God, let us think like you do with restoration on our hearts. Lord, let us see a broken branch and see how can we restore and bring healing to this root system. Lord, that we would see wormed fruit and, and, and pick away the things that would contaminate it, but say, how can we remind you that you have been grafted into a new tree? That there's a root of Jesse that we get to be a part of there's an inheritance. God, I thank you for what you're doing. Lord, even as we celebrate over these next two weeks what you've done, God, I ask, Lord, that you would draw people to the party. Lord, let us invite people, God, not just to say, look and see, but come and meet. Come and join.
Orphan, come and find your family. Lost, come and be found in him. We thank you, God, that we were lost and now we are found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give him praise? Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget, you can find us online at cityoflights.church and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.